take your Bible tonight. Let's go to John chapter 21. John and the last chapter of this gospel, chapter 21. I want to read starting in verse 1. We'll read down a little ways, and then we'll look at a few other verses in just a moment. John chapter 21, and beginning with verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. I go a-fishing. Have you ever noticed that when God is working, the devil is always trying to undo whatever God is doing? It seems like when we first get saved, boy, the devil almost seems like he ramps up his pressure upon our life. A person makes a decision to serve the Lord. They take a step forward in their Christian life, and it's like the devil paints a big target on their back. Boy, I'm coming after you. Whenever the Lord is doing a work, the devil is always trying to undo that work. These disciples had been following the Lord for about three years. Earlier in the book of Mark, in chapter 1, Jesus was walking by this same Sea of Galilee. Here it's called Tiberias. And he saw two brothers casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus saith unto them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And now for these three years, these disciples have been following the Lord. And just think for a moment in your mind what they had experienced. Think of the miracles they had seen. I mean, they'd seen Jesus heal the sick, made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the, uh, the eyes of the blind were opened. They heard Jesus preach and teach the scriptures, and the disciples had the distinct privilege of, of coming to Christ afterwards and saying, declare unto us the parable. We, we're, we're still in the dark. We're still confused. Open our eyes, and the Lord would take the parable or the teaching, and he would dissect it further, and they would understand. These disciples have had some amazing experiences as they've watched the multitudes come and hear the preaching and teaching and see the miracles of Christ. But now, Peter says, I go a-fishing. What will Satan use in your life or mine to undo what God has already done in our life? What will he tempt us with? In this story that unfolds in chapter 21, we see three tense moments in the lives of these disciples. First of all, we see a love of self. Now, I hammered this pretty hard today in Sunday school, so uh, I'm not going to delay here or, or harbor here for long, but it is our enemy, this thing called self. And Satan always is trying to promote the creature over the Creator. And we see Peter building the me idol here. He says, I go fishing. He's building the me idol. Uh, Peter is no longer concerned about what God wants in his life or what the will of God might be. He wants to do what Peter wants to do. 
You know, we get a little upset when people tamper with the Scriptures. We don't like people coming up with all these modern translations that, that damage the truth of the Word of God, and, and we take a strong position on that, you know. But some of us have our own uh, modern translation. Uh, we like to think, not thy will, but mine be done. Uh, we like to pray, I delight to do my will, O God. Uh, we'd rather say, uh, order my steps in my will and let not thy word have any dominion over me. In other words, we, we like to think of ourselves as, as being in charge and we build the me idol. John warns uh, the reader in 1 John chapter 5 in the very last verse of that letter, he says, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. Ephraim is joined into idols, let him alone. God withdraws His blessing when we bow to the me idol. But notice the me idol leads to the me influence. Peter says in verse 3, I go fishing. The disciples, those listed in verse 2, they say unto Him, we also go with thee. Understand something. We might think, well, hey, it's my life. I mean, nobody can force me to do what God wants me to do. Nobody can make me get saved. Nobody can make me serve God. I can, it's my life. I get to decide. That's true. But you have an influence. And you're influencing your children and your grandchildren and your neighbors and others in the church. When Peter declared, I'm going fishing, these others chimed right in. Yeah, we'll go with you. The me idol leads to the me influence because so often we love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So often we, we kind of just follow the crowd. But Jesus said, how can you believe which seek honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? In John chapter 6, shortly after Jesus fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fishes, the Bible says in verse 66 of that chapter, from that time on, Many of his disciples walk no more with him. And I find that intriguing because it, it uses the word disciples. These weren't the fly-by-nights. These weren't the easy believism crowd. This wasn't some crowd that came once in a while on Sunday morning. It says many of his disciples walk no more with him. These were people that at some point had denied self, taken up their cross, and had followed him. But now the teaching got a little difficult. It got a little bit hard. And they said, now we're out. We're out. And Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, will you also go away? In other words, Jesus recognized there the power of that influence. As many were beginning to depart, uh, he thought, you know, any of you guys want to check out as well? The me idol leads to the me influence. But notice it also leads to the me inability. In verse 3, I go fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. The me inability. You know, God will allow us to some extent to live our choice. He'll allow us to say, Okay, I'm out. I, I don't have any desire to serve anymore. And God says, Okay, try it on your own. But it's going to lead to the me inability because without me, you can do nothing. In other words, Jesus didn't say, without me, you can do a little bit. Without me, you can do some things. No, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. 
A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. We are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. These men were professional fishermen. They knew that Sea of Tiberias like the back of their hand. They knew how to fish, but that night, without God, they caught nothing. And friend, I'm here to tell you tonight, you can try to live your life on your own. You can try to do it your way. You can try to raise your children in your own humanistic thinking. You can try to be the Christian you ought to be in your own flesh. But God says you're going to accomplish nothing. There was a love of self. You know, no one is emptier than the person who is filled with self. When we're all wrapped up in self, we're way overdressed. And we must put aside self, as we saw this morning, in order for God to use us. So we see a battle here, a tense moment, a love of self. But notice, secondly, a lesson on surrender. Verse 4, but when the morning was now come, Jesus will allow us to go our way if that's what we're determined to do. He'll let us live in our stubbornness against His will. But when the morning's now come, there's a morning coming. And when the morning was now come, the Bible says in verse 4 there that Jesus stood on the shore. When you leave off in your Christian life, guess what? Jesus is going to be right where you left Him. These disciples, they said, adios, Lord, we're out of here. We're going fishing. And when they saw that sunlight coming up, they saw somebody standing at the door at the shore. They didn't know who it was, but Jesus was right where they left him. And he's going to be right where you leave him. We see here a distant presence. Jesus stood on the shore, verse 4, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. You know, we can get far enough away from God where we don't recognize His voice anymore. We can get so far from God that we don't hear that still, small voice. We get so far from God that we don't see His hand at work in our life. There's a distant presence. He's there, but all we like sheep, we've gone astray. As the songwriter said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And I wonder tonight, what has come between you and your Savior? What has come between you and God tonight? Are we missing the blessings of God because we've allowed this distance to develop between us and God? Your iniquities have, have withholden these good things from you, Jeremiah says. The Lord's hand's not shortened that it cannot save. His ear's not heavy that it will not hear, but your sins have separated between you and your God. Your iniquities have hid His face from you that He will not hear. There was a distant presence, but notice a discerning perception. In verse 5, Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered Him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he's writing this, this gospel, and he describes himself that way. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Here was a discerning perception. As these disciples, they heard this voice on the shore, they weren't sure who it was. But John kind of sees through that marine layer, he kind of looks through that mist or fog, and he says, he says uh, I, I think that might be Jesus. 
And when they see this miracle, they know that no one could have done this but the Lord. It is the Lord. There was a discerning perception. You know, we can try to deny the presence of God. We can try to run out of His presence. We can try to get away from the speaking of His voice. We can try to say, well, that would have happened anyway. That wasn't God. But in our hearts, we know that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We see a divine power. In verse 6, he says, cast the net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find. They cast therefore and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. And so uh, John says, Peter, it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fishers coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. A divine power. These men had gone out and fished all night. And they knew how to cast those nets. They knew where the schools of fish would be. They knew how to draw the nets. They knew everything there was to know about fishing. They had made their living off of it. But that night, nothing. Zero. And all Jesus has to do is speak the word. And the net's full of fish. A divine You know, God can do more in one word than we can do with our whole life. And yet we try to do things on our own, don't we? We try to think that we can do better than He can. All God had to do was speak, and this net was filled with fish. And it's interesting to me, He gives us an exact number in this passage, 153. And I find that intriguing because often in the Bible, God uses... a a rounded off number. For example, how many people were saved on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000. Then they gladly received His Word, were baptized, and the same day they were added to the church, about 3,000 souls. About. Now, don't you think the Holy Spirit knew exactly how many got saved on the day of Pentecost? Of course He did. He had to seal every one of them until the day of redemption. He had to indwell every one of them at the moment of salvation. So he knew exactly how many, but he says about 3,000. By the way, I think there were more than 3,000. I don't think the Lord would over embellish the number. We would, right? We would, we would round it up, you know. Uh, how many do we have here tonight? About, uh, oh, I'd say about 200, wouldn't you, Pastor? About, about 200 here tonight. You know, that would be evangelistically speaking, right? By the way, why is it always evangelistically speaking? Don't pastors ever exaggerate? Isn't it ever pastorally speaking? But it's always evangelistically speaking. But, but you get the idea. It's a rounded off number. In the Old Testament, you look at Job or Abraham or Solomon, and when God lists their wealth, He says they had 5,000 sheep and 5,000 camels and, you know, 4,000 stalls for their horses. Well, really, I grew up on a farm. You know, those numbers of animals are a little bit fluid. You know, a farmer might say, yeah, I got 100 milk cows. Well, that may not be true the whole time. 
In other words, animals die, animals are born. That number is somewhat fluid. I was on a sheep ranch uh, about a year or two ago. I was preaching a men's retreat out in Wyoming, and they, 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 they went out to this sheep ranch where we had the services. And, and we were there less than 48 hours, and thir- uh, 19 lambs were born during, that, during that, that 24 hours. It was amazing. I'd look out the window, oh, there's another one, <laughs> there's another one. I mean, they were just dropping, you know, and, and, and that number is a little bit fluid when you're talking about animals. So God uses some rounded-off numbers, 5,000 sheep, 5,000 camels, you know, 4,000 of this, whatever. But here, He gives an exact number, 153. So now that intrigues me. I begin to think about that, and I wonder why. I don't know everything there is to know about this, but I know some people who do. And I'm told that in the world tonight, in all the fresh water, all the salt water, you can trace all the fish in the world tonight back to 153 species. Now, if that's true, this number becomes very significant. Because remember, Jesus had called these men to follow Him, and I'll make you fishers of men. They said, no, we're going back to fishing for fish. And now Jesus is re-inviting them to come back, come back to my will, come back to what I called you to do, and he puts 153 fish in that net. You know what he's saying? I want all men to be saved. I need you to get back into the ministry, guys, because I need all men to be saved, somebody from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, God is not a prejudiced God. He's not a biased God. He's not up in heaven saying, well, I think I'll save some people in Phoenix, but none in Tucson. I think I'll save some people in America, but none in India. No, no, no. God is not willing any perish. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, I can assure you on the basis of the Bible, it's God's will you get saved. And I believe it's God's will you get saved today because the Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. God never speaks of salvation in the future tense. He always speaks of it in the present tense. He never says, get saved soon. He never says, get saved tomorrow. He says, today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. Come now, let us reason together. Remember now, thy creator, in the days of thy youth. Right? So it's always present tense. So he wants you to be saved, and he wants you to be saved now. And did you notice the last phrase in verse 11? There were so many in this net, yet was not the net broken. Now think about this for a minute. Whenever you find fishermen in the Gospels, what are they always doing? Mending their nets. Exactly right. Why? Well, because the nets were always breaking. I mean, those nets were made of cloth, and, and they'd get in the water and get saturated in that water, and then they'd dry out, and they would, they would fray, they would break. And so the fishermen, in between their fishing excursions, they had to bring those nets out, and they had to repair them. They're always sitting there mending their nets. But the Bible makes a point here that though there were so many in this net, it took all these men to be able to drag it to the shore, yet was not the net broken. You know what that tells me? What God tells us to do, you can assure yourself the net's not going to break. Listen, 
God may impress upon your heart to go witness to your neighbor. And you might think, man, I don't know. They're kind of rude sometimes, and I don't know them real well, and they are my neighbors. I mean, I don't want to upset them. Listen, if God is telling you to go witness to them, you can be assured the net won't break. Maybe God's speaking to somebody about tithing. You think, I don't know. I mean, I just put it on paper here. It don't add up. I just don't think we can do it. Listen, prove God, and that won't break. Given it shall be given unto you. Young person, listen to me. If God's calling you to serve Him with your life, and He's saying, hey, you should go to Bible college. Now, immediately the devil's going to say, well, how are you going to pay for that? That's going to cost a lot of money. And you're going to have to eat food that your mother doesn't cook. That's not going to be easy. And you're going to have roommates. And it's a long ways away. You might get homesick. Listen to me, young people. If God calls you, then that won't break. It won't break. He promises that where God guides us, He provides for us. He's being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here was a lesson on surrender. Are you still consumed with self? Are you still unsurrendered in your life? Listen, when we get self out of the way and we get our lives surrendered to the will of God, then it leads, thirdly tonight, to a life of service. Now, I know as soon as we hear that word service, we kind of back up. And we think, uh... I, I don't know, I, that's not in my human DNA to serve. I like to be served, but I, you know, I'm not really, but we've got to remember who we're serving, and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. And we've got to remember that we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and here is a, a life now of service, and notice a supreme preeminence. Now, once they get these fish to the shore and the disciples come up there on the bank of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus already has a fire. He's already got some fish cooking there on the fire. And he says, come and dine. So they eat. And they probably had some conversation there around that fire. Now, notice verse number, uh, number uh, let's see, uh, number 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. We see first here a supreme preeminence. Jesus looks at Peter after they had died and he said, Simon, lovest thou me more than these? Now, the Bible is a written document, correct? It's not, in, it's not in video. You have to read it, right? But sometimes you have to provide some video to understand it. 
In other words, in your mind, you, you've got, as you read, you've got to see this. When Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? He had to be pointing at something. Now, the words don't tell us what he's pointing at. But he had to be pointing at something. So, what are the these? <laughs> Who are the these? Uh, when Jesus said, Simon, do you love me more than these? Was he pointing to the other disciples sitting there? you love me more than these guys? Was he pointing to maybe some houses that dotted the hillsides around the Sea of Galilee? Peter, do you love me more than these houses? I don't know what your video is showing you, but in my video, I think that these are the, are the fish. He's pointing to the fish on the fire, or maybe some fish over on the net still flopping on the boat, and he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, he's not asking him, Peter, do you like me better than fried fish? He's saying, Peter, do you love me more than what this world has to offer you? Because see, a couple hours before, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the Lord says, I need to know something, Peter. Do you love me more than these? You walked away from ministry. You walked away from me. You walked away from my will. And you decided you had it better out there. You found out without me, you can do nothing. Now, I need to know something, because Peter, I got a plan for your life, but I got to know, do you love me more than what this world has to offer you? Do you love me? A supreme preeminence. When I was a um, sophomore in college, that next summer, between my sophomore and junior year, I did an internship up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the Woodcrest Baptist Church and uh, served there as a college student for the summer, and it was there that God called me to preach. And I'm very grateful that I spent that summer serving under Pastor Clark Corman in that great church. So I went back the next summer. Between my junior and senior year, I went back to that church and served again as a summer intern, and that was the summer God called me to evangelism. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, at the end of that summer, I was, I was needing to go back for my senior year, and I needed to go back a couple of weeks early because I was playing football, and, and two-a-days started uh, two weeks prior to school starting. So I had made all those arrangements, like I had the summer before, to leave a little bit early and, and drive back down. We had to be in on Saturday night by curfew so we could go to church on Sunday and then start two-a-days early Monday morning. So they knew I was leaving on Saturday. Well, I got to thinking about that trip, and I thought, uh, you know, there's a girl uh, that lives sort of on the way. Uh, she lived in Rockford, Illinois. Not exactly a straight line from Minneapolis to Watertown, Wisconsin, to go to Rockford. It's about a 90-mile difference between Watertown and Rockford, but it's kind of on the way. And we had been friends, we had been talking for since my freshman year. She was a year and a half ahead of me, was already out of college and teaching in a Christian school in her home church, living with her mom and dad there in Rockford, and, and she was teaching in the Christian school. And, and, and we hadn't really, I mean, we hadn't seen each other at all over the summer. And uh, we didn't live in the day of cell phones. We lived in the day of stamps. And it had been a long summer. And, and I thought, you know, if I left early, if I left early in the morning, Saturday, I could swing down to Rockford, see her for a little bit, and then go on up and still get in by curfew. So I called her. 
and I, I, I presented that plan. And she said, oh, that sounds great. And I talked to her dad. And, and her dad said, yeah, it'd be fine. We'll have, a, we'll have a cookout. So, boy, I got up about 6 o'clock and started down to Rockford and got there right about noon. And, and uh, her dad had had a cookout there in the backyard. She had invited her siblings over. Some of them were married and had families. They came over. And, man, we just had a great time. Just enjoyed you know, time with her family and catching up, you know, from the summer and, and about the fall, me going back to school and her going to, back to teaching. And, and we are just, you know, having a good afternoon. Well, it got to be about, I needed to leave in about 30 minutes. And so we're kind of wrapping things up and and uh, some of her family had already left, and her dad was in the backyard. He was cleaning up the, the, the grill and putting it away. And she and I were sitting on the back of my car, on the trunk of my car, in the driveway of 637 Atwood Avenue. We're just talking, kind of saying our final, you know, things. Not really wanting it to end, I suppose, but we're kind of finishing up our conversation, just talking about life and talking about the summer and talking about the fall. And, and uh, we're, just, we're just having a good time talking on the back of my car. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I mean out of left field, she looked at me and said, John, do you love me? Now, we've been dating three years, but we had not used the L word yet. And when she posed that question, I, I, my mind began to, to, to turn. It began to spin very quickly because I'm trying to think of the right answer to that, you know. And as my mind was turning, I'm thinking, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know I love football. I did. I, I couldn't wait for two a days. I was in shape. I was ready to go my senior year, man. This was going to be my best year. I mean, I, I've been playing football 10 years. This was my final year. I, I was ready. I, was, I couldn't wait. I, I love football. Did I love her? I, I don't know. I love dorm life. My parents sold the farm when I got sick and went in the hospital my senior year. I told the teenagers about that yesterday, and, and I was in the hospital for three months my senior year. My dad had to sell the farm because they couldn't keep it going, and and so they had moved into a little house in town about a mile from the college I went to. They lived one mile from the college I went to for four years, and I lived in the dorm all four years. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. I loved the horseplay. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the practical jokes. That's why I'm still in a college today, I guess. I don't know. I love dorm life. Did I love her? I, I don't know. So after this quick process, I, I paused and finally said... I don't know. That wasn't the answer she was looking for. But ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young people tonight, God's asking us, do you love me? I, I know you love your family. That's good. Do you love me? I, I know you love your church. That's great. Do you love me? Okay, you love the job I've given you and the skills I've given you to do it. That's great, but do you, do you love me? Jesus said our love for our family members ought to look like hatred compared to our love for Him. A supreme preeminence. Do you love me? And that supreme preeminence leads to a suffering people. 
Did you notice each time Peter says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee, and Jesus responds with, Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Your love for the Savior is seen in how you treat the sheep. See, see don't, don't tell me this stuff like, well, I love God, but I don't believe in church. I don't think you have to go to church to love the Lord. Wait a minute. You say you love God whom you've never seen, but you can't love your brother who you do see? Something wrong here, Jesus said. See, our love for the shepherd is seen in how we treat the sheep. You can't adore the shepherd and avoid the sheep. There's a suffering people that if we love the Lord, we're going to surrender to serving those people. And it leads ultimately to a single purpose. Now, Peter, he, he says, yea, Lord, I love you. And, and Jesus is satisfied with the answer. And if you, if you dig into the Greek here, the, the questions become more intense. We'll not deal with that tonight. But, but, but Peter responds affirmatively each time, I love you, I love you, I love you. And Jesus is okay with the answer. He can read the heart. So he knew it was sincere. So notice now, Jesus in verse 18 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Well, that's a long compound sentence. What is he saying? Well, he explains it in the next verse, verse 19. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. Jesus said, Peter, if you love me, you're going to die for it. Now, the Lord doesn't tell everybody that, but He told Peter that. He's predicting His martyrdom. He's saying, Peter, if you love me and you're going to serve me, you're going to die for it. And by the way, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs and the historian Jerome, Peter was martyred, he was crucified. And Jerome states, the historian Jerome states in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he said when Peter was led to the place of crucifixion, he requested that he be crucified upside down. For he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner and form as my Lord. Thus, Jerome says, they crucified Peter upside down, his head being downward, his feet upward. Wow. I guess Peter did love the Lord. And when Jesus predicts this martyrdom, Peter's okay with it. He doesn't say, uh, Lord, uh, Lord, can I change my vote? <laughs> you know, Lord, I, uh, whoa, wait, what? Die for you? Okay, uh, I don't know. No, there's no hesitation by Peter here. But Peter does show us our human side. L look at verse 20, uh, verse 20. Then Peter turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, uh, following which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, would you see the betray thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? <laughs> Isn't that just like us? Okay, Lord, I'm in. Yeah, I'll die for you. What's pastor going to do? 
Okay, Lord, I'll serve. What are the deacons doing, by the way? Isn't that like us? We're always worried about everybody else. And did you notice what Jesus says there in verse 22? He said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Peter, get your eyes off John. Get your eyes off everybody else, Peter. Follow me. A single purpose. Don't be worried about what everybody else is going to do. Don't worry about my will for their life. You follow me. I played my last football game the third week of November of that senior year. It was an away game. It was at North Dakota State University. It was cold. It was the coldest game and most miserable game I've ever played in. When we got there on Friday night, the temperatures were plunging. It had been raining all day, and the ground was beginning to freeze. We got up the next morning. Everything was ice, and it was sleeting. It was just right at that temperature where it wasn't snow, it wasn't rain. It's just like ice falling on the field. We got out there. We were not prepared for that. We were not prepared for those elements. And we found out very quickly, we, we were no match to this team. They, they were a great team, and, and, and we just we, we got pummeled. We got beat. It was one of those games where, for me personally, I couldn't get loose. I couldn't get, I couldn't get my muscles even warmed up just to be able to play. There was just no freedom to play. It was just so cold. We got beat. And the truth is, when that game ended, I thought, playing all those years of football, I thought, you know, when I finally have to hang this up, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But you know what? I remember that long drive back to Wisconsin from North Dakota and that weather, and I thought, I'm glad this is over. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, you know, I knew I'd miss the game a little bit, but, you know, the weight room and the two-a-days and all that kind of stuff, I was just kind of glad that chapter of my life had closed. I remember that next morning we were required to get our equipment in and our playbooks turned in by, by 3 o'clock that afternoon. I remember gathering up my pads and all that stuff out of my locker and the playbook and taking it to the coach's office. And I thought this would be an emotional, you know, uh, difficulty. But I really, I, I, I was kind of glad it was over. And I was looking forward to the next parts of my life. Oh, I, would, I went back and played in the alumni game for I don't know how many years I played till I was 44. I got to play against my son in his first college football game. I, I got to uh, hit him a good a couple of times. But, uh, but, but you know, I, I still played some games, tackle football after that, but, but I didn't have to go through all the practice and all that stuff, you know. So it was over. I, uh, semester was ending. I had my final exams, Christmas break. Spring semester, I only needed eight credits to graduate, which was going to free me up to do some extension work in Chicago, preaching and stuff, and I thought, this, this is awesome. Well, Christmas break came, and I thought about that girl again. So I called her. I said, hey, remember me? <laughs> she said, yes. I said, hey, it's Christmas. Uh, I got a couple weeks off. I'm sure you do too, and just thought maybe we'd get together. He said, what do you have in mind? I said, well, if you could uh, drive up, I've arranged a place for you to stay, and I've gotten permission for us to go to the Fireside Inn. Now, the Fireside Inn still there. It's in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, and it's, it's kind of an elite place. I don't know what kind of place it is today. I've only been there once. 
But, but, but we, it was a place where the college would let people go for a special occasion. You had to go through some protocol and get some passes and things like that. But, but you could go if you, if you follow the rules. And so I would gotten permission for us to go to this fireside inn. And uh, so she agreed to come up, and, and uh, she got to where she was staying, and I picked her up. We went out to the fireside inn that night, and, man, it was everything we'd heard about. I mean, other kids had talked about being there. And it was phenomenal, just amazing atmosphere in those days. And the food was fantastic. The prices were high, but uh, it was a fantastic experience. And we were there probably an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and just enjoyed talking and eating and, and having a good time. And we got back in the car. I drove back to Watertown, and I was taking her to the place where she was staying, but I took a detour. And I went down a street, turned into a parking lot at Riverside Park, a place where I played a lot of football. Pulled under a light standard and stopped and shut off the car, and she looked at me like, what are we doing? I said, uh, I, I have a question. I said, um, Will you marry me? <laughs> she laughed. Now, I'll give you a clue. That's a bad omen, okay? <laughs> she, she laughed. And she said, when? When we're 85? We had been dating now three and a half years. We were the brunt of every joke on the campus. You guys are never going to get married. You're just going to date all your life. She said, when? When we're 85? I said, no. I was thinking... Maybe this summer. <laughs> she looked at me like, what kind of a cruel joke is this? And I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out a little white square box. I was going to do it at the restaurant, but I chickened out. <laughs> I pulled out this box, and I took the lid off, and I pulled out a diamond ring. It looks just like this one. Same style, same design as the one I wear tonight except hers is round, mine is oval, from carrying all my suitcases all these years. She said yes. And she and I have worn these rings now for 46 years. Now, how did she know that night that I was ready to commit myself to her for the rest of our days on earth? When four months before, when she asked me if I loved her, I said, I don't know. How'd you know? The ring. The ring. The ring in Western civilization represents commitment, does it not? When a guy empties his bank account and buys the diamond ring, that ring cost me $100. A hundred bucks. I know you young people, you're laughing, but it was a different day. <laughs> Gas was 28 cents a gallon. I was working a job for a construction company, hanging drywall, making a dollar ten an hour, minimum wage. After taxes, 97 cents was my take-home pay. I got saved at camp at the age of 15. Went to camp on Monday morning, stayed till Saturday noon. You know how much it cost me the week I got saved to go to camp? Whole week. $13. $13. You can't feed that kid one meal for $13. It's a different day. 
So that $100 diamond ring, it was big. It was everything I had. Hey, you know what God is saying to us tonight? Show me the ring. Show me the ring. I, I, I hear you say, my Jesus, I love thee. You sing it, I know thou art mine for thee, all the follies of sin. I hear you, I hear you. Show me the ring. Show me the commitment. I hear you pray, Lord, I love you. I, I hear it. John said, my little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. God is saying tonight, show me the ring. Show me the commitment. Show it to me tonight when you get home with your family. Show it to me tomorrow at work. Show it to me this week in your faithfulness to me. Show me the ring. We can talk about it. We can say it. We can sing it. We can pray it. God says, hey, I want to see it in your life. Do you love me? If you love me, serve me. Serve me. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we love you because you loved us first. Our love is a reciprocal love. And Lord, when we think about that, our love should be a lot stronger than it is. For you love us with an everlasting love. God, tonight, each of us face things that try to pull us away from our love for you. For Peter, it was 